Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast, a weekly show about all things engineering, DIY projects, manufacturing, industry news, and breadboarding circuits. We're your hosts, electrical engineers, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 363. Uh, so like last episode, I, we said this, but we'll say it again. I'm probably keep saying this until the, the event until it happens. So it happens. <laughs> yeah. Uh, May 4th of this year. So 2023, uh, we're bringing back the Macrofab meetup. What does that mean? It means if you're in the Houston area, come swing by Macrofab HQ on May 4th for a engineering meetup. Um, we don't know exactly what we're going to be doing. We'll probably have some talks. We'll have some food, some beer, good times. We used to do this back when Steven was down here in Houston, um, and it was always a lot of fun. Usually we would have like about 40, 50 people show up. Um, I suspect we're going to have more now because uh has gotten a lot bigger. And we actually have more space to do an event like this too now. Um, and you yeah, get the, even if you're not in the Houston area, it's it's worth coming out for. It's uh, it's a lot of fun, and it's really good for networking too. If uh, you want to meet um, some other engineers, and uh, I guess that when we were doing it, I mean, I remember filling the entire room. Uh, there was there was at least 80, 80 people. Yeah, there so sometimes we had a lot of people show up. If we had yeah. a good uh, uh, speaker, um, we're still trying to figure out what we're actually going to do at the event. If we're going to do speakers or anything like that, um, like some ideas I tossed that was like a live podcast, which means we'd have to fly Steven down. But we got a couple months to figure not, it out. I'm not opposed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, there was also, if I remember right, there were some 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 tours of the uh, MacFab facility, which is which is fun because if you've never just if you've never seen an electronics manufacturing assembly line, that's kind of fun to see. Yeah. Um, and it's going to be our new facility, so it's going to be kind of spacious. Even when we were doing the tours at our old, uh, our current place back then, it was already kind of packed. Now it's even crazier at our current place. Um, oh, I'm sure. So I can't wait till the new new facility opens up. I think we're Which, that's happening soon, right? Like early February. Like actually, you have like movers like and dates in a week or two. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like looking at all my stuff that I have to pack up and I'm like, oh no, so much stuff. I remember just the move from the old Hutchins location to the location you're at currently and how much effort we had to put into, uh, into making sure it happened in a short period of time, you know, cause we, ha- we did it in the middle of production and that's <laughs> what we're doing now. Well, yeah. So yeah. we're moving one line over, setting it up. And then running that machine, run line, run that line as we yeah leapfrog it, leapfrog kind of the thing. line over, next line over. So it's not going to be yeah. too bad. We'll see. Um, but yeah, I, I, it's a I move over distinctly. <laughs> for for whatever reason, this is etched in my memory. Um, we we had a meeting with a with a handful of people who we we all volunteered to. Well, we all either volunteered or we were volunteered to to organize the move. And I, I, I very distinctly remember a, a meeting where Chris Church, CEO at the time, came in and said, we are moving with military uh, precision. <laughs> and, <laughs> and you know what? We did it. We did. That was it. a good uh, move. It, it was it was like five days. If but, that, uh, too. Yeah. 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 We'll see how this is going to go. Um, I think it's going to go well. Especially since we can set up more stuff at this facility ahead of time. Whereas like yeah, last time we kind of had to move and set stuff up at the same time. Whereas like now I've like, I have all electrical boxes put in all the plugs made all everything's got airlines already done. So like machine goes down, yeah, like gets it, plugged it, in <laughs> with the old room, like getting the compressor into the room was like, cool. We got the compressor in. Okay, now we got to set everything now up we, yeah, and we, got, we have to figure everything out. Yeah, we, now we got to run a line <laughs> over the way over into operations and stuff. No, that's all done. Already that's, got that that's done. That's nice. Um, really looking forward to it. So, um, And then also in the future, but near future, because it's next week, uh, we're going to have Misha and Chris 
back on the podcast. So Misha is our CEO of MacFab, and Chris is the other co-founder and chief product officer. Um, we're going to be talking about, I think the topic is, unless they change it again on me, because it's only changed twice, <laughs> um, is the state of digital manufacturing landscape. Um, and that is not something they wrote. That's something I made up after like Misha gave me like a whole paragraph for what he wants to talk about. And I'm like, I think this is what this means. <laughs> Misha and Chris are, are, are really good at having their finger, uh, their, their thumb on how things are going. I mean, it's their job to do that. Yeah. So, uh, I'm looking forward to this one. It'll be fun. Yeah. So, um, that's actually part of the reason why, of uh, those that are listening to us on their, their podcast device, like on their phone or in the browser, um, that just download the episode they don't know that so we switched from on this episode we switched from using twitch.tv as our live streaming platform we switched over to youtube and unfortunately there's not a cool like youtube url yet i have to go figure out if there's like a way to make a direct url that's always like the live stream but we switched over to youtube because all our video content for macrofab is on youtube and this like next week is going to be like the first like video I wanted to make sure that was on YouTube from the podcast and switching over just, I had to work the kinks out and it seems to be working fine so far. We've been live on Twitch, uh, not on Twitch, uh, YouTube for like over an hour and it's been fine. Yeah, actually yeah, so just a little bit over an hour. <laughs> so, so next week, if you want to catch the, uh, the stream live. We'll have YouTube links for that. Uh, and uh, you'll be able to <coughs> hang out with uh, Parker and I and with uh, Misha and Chris. Yep. All right. So we have one topic this week. It's a uni topic. Yep. Breadboarding we, so your been, circuits. Yeah. So uh, uh, this this week, surprisingly, breadboarding came up in our Slack channel, our MacFab Slack well, channel, was, and it kind of exploded. Well, I wanted to. Like I'd like I needed a, a bigger breadboard, um, and because my, my old big breadboard ha is just gone. It's just it's it got consumed by macrofab like years and years ago. I don't know where it's at anymore. It's somewhere probably at HQ. No idea where though. Um, so I was like, okay, I need to buy a new one, and I found one on like Amazon for like thirty five bucks, and I'm like, reviews are good, and I'm like, what's everyone's opinion about breadboards, and then. You ask a room of 12 engineers how many, you know, what's a good thing or what's a bad thing, and you get 12 different opinions, right? You get 20 opinions. Yeah, you get 20, yeah. Because they always change their mind halfway through while listening to someone else, right? <laughs> right. And uh, I ended up buying that one because, like, one suggestion was like, oh, yeah, buy the 3M one, and the 3M one was like $300. <laughs> Actually, I did. <laughs> yeah. I did seriously consider buying it though, just to say I had a 3M breadboard. But I'm like, just to say that you spent that much money on a breadboard, and I'd be, I, I, I could wear it like, like you know, Flavor Flav wears a clock. I could wear a breadboard. Yeah, oh, 3M I breadboard. It. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I could, I could. Back in college, I could have totally seen somebody doing that. Oh, <laughs> like there were there were there were some people at school that just owned the fact that they were electrical engineers, really, and and like I I was a little bit I was a little bit uh, jealous of them because like it's just like you just don't necessarily care what people think about you and I respect that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I didn't buy it because I'm like Parker, the thirty five dollar one's going to work fine. And guess what? It does work you, fine. And and okay, so. When we say the word breadboard, what comes to mind for you? For, uh, for me, it's a, a grid plastic thing that connects uh, circuits together. That has like a substrate that can connect things together. It's, well, if you actually look it up, it's called a solderless breadboard. It's the, it's the plastic grid array that has like A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and then all the rows are numbered. Basically, rows are connected, columns are not connected, unless you're on the power rails. Um, that's to me what I consider a breadboard. And and I th I think most people would agree with that. that 
when we say breadboard, it's the thing that you were handed in your electronics lab and, and told to make circuits on. And it's the thing work. that you plug components into. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll certainly get into that. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, we were, we were corrected in terms of when you say breadboard, the, the qualifier of a, sol a solderless breadboard is what we're really talking about. But I think when, when somebody says the word breadboard, that's what everyone thinks of. Yeah, right yeah for me, um, the soldered kind of breadboards, I call those proto boards. And that's like, you know, the, the, and I call them perf boards. Perf board. That's also another name. Perf board, proto board. I think proto board might be like a trademark term like Xerox. I've also heard Vero board. That one is definitely is the trademark a, one. Um, it is. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I've, I've, I think that's actually a manufacturer of that, that kind of uh, material. But what those are, are like the one-sided, I guess they could be two-sided, um, but it's a piece of FR4 that just has a grid array of through hole holes. Um, and they do make some versions that are like, you could put like SMT parts on them that kind of like have mm -hmm. areas of like breakout areas. Um, we'll get more into that later than this breadboard topic, I think. But um, though I call those perf board, proto board, that's a different topic, though. But that's technically still a breadboard, right? But they also they, they come in so many different flavors. Like you can get them with different interconnects. You, I've seen them before where they have like card edges, so you mm -hmm. can you can do that kind of stuff. I, I, in my opinion, that's a that's a different style of prototyping uh, outside of breadboarding because that still requires you to solder, and it becomes more of a permanent. Thing. style of circuit construction whereas breadboard to me is the plug it in if you don't like that value unplug it plug another value in that's a breadboard in my mind yeah i agree there um so why even do breadboarding especially nowadays where getting fr4 for like getting a custom pcb is so inexpensive nowadays why even do it? That was like the biggest, like people were arguing in our Slack channel over whether or <laughs> not breadboarding was still a viable thing anymore. I, I really love the conversation uh, because it, it, the thing about it is it depends so much on what you, what your intent with a breadboard even is or what your breadboards are not like a, like a, a simple solution to any circuit design like it, they're kind of one of those things where it's like if you know you can use them then they're really useful but also there's it's pretty easy to figure out when they're not gonna work for you uh and so your perception might be that they're they're crappy or they're bad or they're useless if the majority of the stuff you design couldn't be on a breadboard mm -hmm. but the thing about why even use a breadboard to be honest, I'm in the camp that they are a time saver, even though it doesn't necessarily feel like you're getting the end product. I think you can uh, come up with a bunch of solutions very, very quickly on a breadboard and you can test your ideas way faster than, uh, you know, spinning up a board, then waiting for it to come and then starting the polishing. Yeah, I think you can go right from concept to polishing way faster. I I use it as we'll get more into this like later more later, but I use it as a way to check kind of like my net lists in my schematic. Because it's one thing to like build your schematic and then do a then you have to do a layout to get your board made. And then if that if if there's something wrong with your net list that your schematic made, then you gotta redo your layout. So it's a good check to check to see if your net list is correct. And funny enough, on my cat feeder unreminder, I had an error on my net list. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I I would have spun the board and had to make a rev two. Yeah. This is yep. this is one of the this is one of the ways how um breadboarding is one of the ways how I make sure my rev one is actually gonna work. Like I think it's so weird. Like I this is not me like tooting my own horn or anything, but like I put a lot of upfront effort in my first rev to make sure that my first rev will work. 
without having a green wire or anything. I rarely have to solder. Like most time when I have to solder stuff on, it's because like, oh, I want this other feature. So let me solder that on and make sure it works before I, you know, go and spin Rev 2. But most of my Rev 1s just, they, they, they work. Um, but that's because you do all the preliminary work of making sure like your circuit is actually going to work the first time. And yeah, basically like my, um, on my oscillator circuit, my, I had the capacitor, uh, for, for the, uh, um, comparator oscillator. The, I had the capacitor, um, it was connected to the output and the negative, uh, what do you call the negative input on a, a comparator? There's a special name for the, it. The, the uh, inverting terminal. Inverting terminal. I had it connected there and the output. And it should be connected from the... It should have been to the inverting terminal to ground. And mm-hmm. I just... I Basically, when I transferred the schematic over, I just drew the schematic wrong. Yeah. And yeah. that's all it took was just you know one little flub. And it's like, well, that would have... That would have been a cut trace in a wire. Cut trace in a wire because it oscillated at like 119 kilohertz or something yeah. like that instead of 45 hertz. Right, right, right. Uh, you, you basically had like ridiculous feedback. Oh, yeah. It was point. just feedback. He didn't just ringing is basically what it was doing. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and breadboarding allowed you to figure out that pretty quickly, yeah. right? Now that only works if you actually breadboard it and then corrected it on the software side of it. I did. Yeah, but- I, I you know the funny thing is about that was um we'll get more uh, we'll get to this in a little bit. Okay. Um well, so, so, so let me let me give a, an interesting um example of of breadboarding here. So I, I, my industry is a little bit, uh, shall we say, unique because I, I'm, I'm designing musical instruments for, for people. So the, the design requirements are not as, shall we say, rigid, or they don't necessarily come to me on a piece of paper that said, this circuit should do X, Y, and Z. This and circuit like, needs to oscillate at 45 hertz. It's like, no, it should right. oscillate in a way that sounds good. Yeah, yeah. Well, and 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 I was designing a circuit that needed to to have some time-based effects on it. And from from the sales and engineering team, it was explained to me like normally it should go and and, and it legitimately the conversation was like this. Normally it should go pew pew pew, but there should be an extra effect that if you apply a voltage to this one thing, it should go pew. And that's how it was explained to me. It wasn't said like the normal <laughs> decay should be one second from this voltage to this voltage and the accented decay should be this to this. No, it was explained like that. And so how do you spin a PCB up and like do that? The way I did it is I, I was like, okay, I need a decay circuit that is voltage controlled. I built it up on a breadboard and such that I could quickly drop in resistors and caps and and create those two conditions of the regular mode and the accented mode and then spun that into a board and i guarantee you i i dodged an entire pcb rev by just doing that and 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 so like i i think breadboards are fantastic for that exact example even though it is a little bit unique Say say you're you're trying to make a, a just whatever filter and and you you put in your your values into a calculator. Well, you can confirm it really quickly on a on a breadboard before committing to a PCB. And when I say quickly, like we're talking about matter of hours or even days versus weeks uh, to be able to go to your boss and say like, yes, I'm confident that this will work. Mm. I think that's the magic of breadboards. At the same time, something that's nice about breadboards, depending on your setup, is the fact that you can compartmentalize everything. Like if you just need to test the circuit that goes bew, then like you could just build the thing that just does that, mm-hmm. as opposed to having to set up the entire circuit, which I, I, I get the value of both sides, but I'm I'm way in the camp of like use them to validate the things that you're unsure about yep. and then plug those into your circuit and then you're your success rate will be way higher. I mean, that that's what I was doing with the cat feeder on reminder is I would build the, I built the oscillator circuit. And I made sure the oscillator circuit was working. And then I built yep. like the solar circuit and 
even though I'm using a lot of valuation boards, you can still like basically I'm like double side foaming the 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 evaluation board down and then having it jumper over into my breadboard so I can test what its signals are outputting, making sure all that stuff's going to work right. Um, but that was one thing is like, I didn't know the oscillator was going to work until I tested it. And then also like my, um, my analog switches. I didn't know, like one thing we were unsure of is could it handle current going the opposite direction, like an actual AC signal, uh, AC power, going backwards and it can um and uh but like an ac signal above offset of zero it's it's super weird that whole setup is just so weird but it works great it's awkward but it works it works great yeah um turn two dc square waves into an actual ac signal so um works great though seems to be fine the um, yeah, I was able to prototype all that out and validate it, and like I actually have it on my bench running for like the past couple uh, well, part of the circuit for the past couple of weeks. But I I put the switcher in last night, and um, been working great. So like you press the button, it goes into like unfeed mode, and then like the timer trips and goes into feed mode. I'm like, okay, we're we are ready to commit to FR4 now. <laughs> we we are unreminding. You were unreminding. Um, so so w- one tip that I've certainly learned is uh, breadboards are generally cheap un- unless you're buying the 3M version, I guess. But breadboards are cheap. So once you have your circuit working the way you like it on your breadboard, just leave it. Like if you need another breadboard, go buy another breadboard. Leave that circuit the way it is until you get your PCB in that represents that circuit because if your 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 pcb comes in and it's not functioning the way you want you you need to have that breadboard back um Mm -hmm. so you can see what you did wrong or what what happened in that situation so quick tip just you know commit that board until you're you're happy with the the fr4 version and then you can rip it all up that's so the 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 next uh point that i think is worth making and, and this is one that I think I've seen a lot of people just seem to, I don't know, forget this. And I, I don't want to sound mean with this, but bread, breadboards don't break physics. All the same rules all still apply. And, and, that, and I know that's a little pedantic there, but basically all the same things that go through your mind while you're laying out a PCB in, in terms of thinking on how a circuit works uh, exactly apply the same way as breadboards. So when you go to actually make your circuit on it, if you kind of do a sloppy job or you just do a quick and dirty throw components at it and you got all these resistors flying all over the place and wires all over the place, you can expect some perhaps not great results uh from the the circuit performance itself the the way current flows the way you set everything up like still applies when doing a a breadboard as a as a pcb so if if you want to set up your breadboard to do the best it possibly can think of it like a pcb like plan it out Plan out how you're going to actually route everything and where your circuits are on the on the breadboard. You know, if you can get away with having flying wires all over the place, then that's fine. But in a lot of situations, you can't do that, especially in some sensitive analog situations. You can't get away with that. So be prepared to spend some time with the actual wires, um, getting them to be short and getting them to be direct to where you need them to go just basically don't be sloppy with your breadboard and you'll end up being rewarded with the performance that you're actually designing towards i think breadboards get a bad rap because most of us experience them in a college lab or even like a high school lab situation where I'm sure you you had the exact same situation I did, Parker, where you'd get into the lab and they have this box of just these brutalized resistors that they hand you and and just these wires that you're not even sure if they're broken or not. And they ask you to make something out of them and you spend half, if not more of your time, just trying to get the circuit working when if 
uh, when you're you're dealing with garbage, yeah. basically. So mine was um, our labs. The breadboards were so old. If you flip the breadboard over, parts would fall out. Yeah, and so yeah, right, I, I right. actually bought my own breadboard for labs because that that I like half how much time I was spending in a lab then. Hmm. And 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 the thing is, I the perception is, oh, breadboards are just bad because I have to spend so much time with this. Well, no, like you're just you're not using them correctly. Is, is and and the problem is you're not set up to use them mm-hmm. correctly. You're set and, up to fail. And it's. In some of my labs, the resistor legs were so bent out of whack that most of the time we had trouble even pushing them into the breadboards. And breadboards are, I mean, well, breadboards and, you know, passive components are so cheap. Like, buy your own set, set yourself up for success, and and uh, just, if you're going through labs like that, just bring your own equipment. It'll make your life so much easier. Yeah. Um, and on that, I guess, um, one of the things to think about too is, um, you know, breadboards are people inherently think of those as, as through hole only testing. Um, what I do is I actually have like, uh, a bin full of like service mount the through hole adapters, I guess you can call them where basically it's like a PCB with some, you know, 100 mil pitch uh, terminals on it and then you solder a component to it and it just breaks out the leads to those through hole parts. Um, and I just have a whole collection of like all the like popular like SOIC 8, uh, 16s, some TSOP stuff. Um, just so that I can... Yeah, so that way I can just solder the part onto that board and now I can use that part on my breadboard. Um so like you look at my breadboards and there's just it's just littered with like lots of little tiny green PCBs all over them. <laughs> little adapter boards. Yeah, little yeah. adapter boards. Because most of my parts, none of them come in through hole. They always come in yeah. surface mount pretty much. And uh there's nothing I can do from that point, except uh that's I think that's where a lot of people are at too now is they see all these surface mount parts and they think just skipping the breadboard step. Um, we'll save them time, but I'll put it this way. How many people out there li- that are listening to us, their Rev 1 never works or barely works, and they always have to have a Rev 2 or Rev 3. And then it's like, if you breadboard and make sure your circuit works on a breadboard, when, it wor- when you put it into uh, FR4, it's just going to work better, generally. On, on one of the last products I was uh, designing, on one of the revs, we found that we we wanted an additional feature. And I knew what the feature, I knew the end result of what I wanted, but I had no clue how to achieve it whatsoever. So I actually took one of the, one of the boards that I currently had and chopped it all up and breadboarded just that circuit so it's so like i had wires hanging off of my board i built the the new feature on a breadboard and uh, and just tested it that way before committing to fr4 because i couldn't even commit to fr4 i had no clue how to make the circuit uh, i had to build the circuit to figure out how to make the circuit kind of thing and i know for a, a fact with how many times i had to go had to change that breadboard i would have gone four or five ten revisions of fr4 just to get to the end result that i could have just done on the breadboard and and to use adapter boards like you're talking about i very very much wanted to use parts that were in our library like i didn't want to conceptualize the design and use parts that we didn't have i i get i used parts that i knew would eventually be in production so i got a bunch of adapter boards and i specified exact components because this was a very specific feature that i had to work basically i didn't want anything left up for a question so i built it with the exact parts from our production and in fact in in certain circumstances i've actually soldered resistor legs to like surface mount capacitors and things to prove that exact capacitor in a breadboard before and i've actually built like converted uh surface mount parts to through hole 
or, or just chip components basically just because I knew like this was the cap we wanted to use. Uh, don't be afraid to do that. Like it, you know, if, if you know you need a very specific component, utilize that one in your bread. So uh, another thing I think that's important is so, so breadboards are on a, a 0.1 inch pitch uh, grid, basically. There's there's component lead benders that work well with breadboards, protoboards, varoboards, all that kind of stuff. Utilize those. Uh, you know, having a resistor hanging up in the air is acceptable in some situations, but really trimming it down, keeping your legs short, uh, keeping your distances between components short keeping your wires short you know it like like i said earlier all the same rules apply to breadboards so if you want the best results get a get a component lead bender it's a grid that will match whatever your lead bender is bend your your resistor legs and trim them to length such that the resistor sits down on the board or on your breadboard set yourself up for the for the best uh situation you you can and uh once again passive components are cheap so if you need to go through 50 resistors to find the right one do it right you know with things like feedback on op amps and things like that don't have huge loops all over the place don't have wires hanging all over the place you're just guaranteeing or not guaranteeing you're just setting yourself up for failure a lot of times what I'll do is I'll, I'll trim a resistor and I will put it on top of a component. Like I will have my feedback be directly over a, uh, a an op amp. You know, those jumper kits that, that you see in like educational kits that, that have all the different color lengths of wires. Those things are fantastic because they're already trimmed to the right correct length. So yep. design around those. Uh, at the same time, you know, on the top and bottom of the long lengths of breadboards you have the the bus wires the 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 blue and and red utilize those for your grounds and your and your um power power rails uh, and put short jumpers that go right from those to whatever component you're working on all of this makes your success go up through the roof you know uh what's his name ben eater edder i don't remember how to pronounce his name um has a, a YouTube channel where he does all kinds of ridiculous circuits, basically designing computers from scratch that all run on breadboards. When he needs new things, he just busts out new breadboards and connects them all together. And he has full like eight bit processors and computers running on breadboard stacks. And, and, and one of his most popular videos, he designed a full-on video card that connects to a monitor and displays images from memory all on a breadboard. So, like, whenever whenever people say, like, oh, you, you know, you can't do high-speed stuff, you can't do digital stuff, you can't handle all this, all, the, all your parasitics are, are going to get in the way, like, go look at this guy's videos. Like, you can do it if you build them all right. And if you look at his stuff, it's gorgeous. Uh, every wire is trimmed to length. He bends nice 90s and stuff like that in, into them. It's just everything is clean. Most of the time, if you see something that looks clean, it there's there's a higher likelihood that there's a lot of effort put into it and a lot of thought that was put into the routing of everything. And uh, an old engineer that I worked under had a, had a really great way of looking at it. He said, if, if you can make your circuit work on a breadboard, it's Get almost guaranteed to work on a PCB. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's harder to make it work on a on a breadboard for sure. Yeah, my um, all my resistors are totally just like flopping in the wind on uh, a catheter and reminder. But most of it, I guess though, most of it is uh, digital circuitry, which is a lot more tolerant of that kind of stuff. Um, it just depends. Yeah, it just depends. It, you know, uh, and like the oscillator circuit, it's like eh, it's just a square wave, like. It's going to have a bunch of harmonics anyways. So it's not, it doesn't really matter too much. Um, like I said, it, it depends. If, if your circuit needed it, then do it. Yes. And um, mine didn't need it. Well, I, this thing is I knew. This, this, this is actually the interesting thing. Is um, when I first breadboarded mine up for, off my schematic, and I had that error in it where the capacitor was not, in the, was not terminated in the right spot. 
I I was about ready to blame the breadboard because I took it I took it off of one breadboard and put it on my new breadboard and it stopped working because when I pulled it off I did basically I had the, it wired the correct way the capacitor the right way but what I went off was my new netlist and that was wrong but yeah I spent about thirty minutes like blaming the breadboard. And then I basically looked at my schematic more closely and then my original like napkin drawing of the schematic. And I'm like, oh, yeah, there's the problem. The net's yeah. wrong. Yep. So nothing wrong with the breadboard. Breadboard was completely fine. I just moved that one leg over to ground and it started oscillating just correctly. It's just like one of those like I, I, I too was quick to judge my, my brand new <laughs> breadboard. It, it, it is funny because um, I remember a uh, one of the labs we were doing in college and uh, we couldn't get the circuit working for whatever reason. And I even remember the TA came over and was like, oh, it was probably just parasitics and 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 told us to write that in our lab report that the reason why the thing that we were trying to do wouldn't work is just parasitics. And that is such a cop out, first of all, for us as students, but also as the TA. And uh, I, I feel a little bit cheated because of that. Mm -hmm. um, it's it, it's also kind of the whole, I, I, re I remember at the beginning of college, we, we had some kind of class where we were learning how to write lab reports in the way that they wanted. And we weren't allowed to use, and I'm using air quotes here, human error. If anything went wrong, we had to explain it. You can't just say like, oh, we messed up. Well, how did you mess up? Mm -hmm. And and I feel like just saying, oh, breadboard or parasitics is the problem. Equipment. Well, no, like figure it out. Yeah, you know? equipment problems. Yeah, yeah. When when the, when the, when your product that you designed fails in the field, you can't just call up the customer and be like, "Well, there were parasitics all around, so you know." Like, no, you don't get that option <laughs> when get you get option. out of college. <laughs> yeah. You're right, because you don't get that option. Uh, no, the customer expects no, yeah. it to work in no matter what environment the customer brings it into. So you have to plan for that. Now, there's some. Well, if they take it outside of its operating range. Yeah, that's, that's different, them, though. But, but like you have different like levels, like, right, you have industrial, you have consumer, et cetera, et cetera. Like if you have a consumer device, if a customer brings that into industrial setting and it fails, You'd be like, come on, dude. Right? Like, yeah. like you bought something that's a consumer device and you're expecting it to work like in an industrial plant or something like that. Like, there's different... That's, but, but the thing is, though, a consumer device in a consumer environment always has to work. You don't get that, mm -hmm. oh, they just brought it to, like, the beach uh, one time and it stopped working at the beach. You know? Yeah. I feel like consumer electronics is harder than industrial. Oh yeah, because with industrial, you get you get a spec sheet and you hit those specs, you and go. you can tell you can tell the customer like hit the specs, and they're like, great, happy, thumbs up. But with a consumer, you, you don't get grace. Like no. if anything goes wrong, they're like, this is crap, and this brand is crap. I dropped my radio in the uh. pool. Why is it not working anymore? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh. I guess um, so. The, uh, so with breadboards, there are limitations, of course, right? Like you're not no. going to run. You're not going to run like your super high speed processors or on your high density stuff. BGA on it. Right. Right. So so those are the ones where you just have to go FR4 and that's that's fine. But once again it kind of goes back to like are there sub circuits that you're unsure of that connect to those things? Maybe you can combine a breadboard and a um dev board together. Yeah. In fact, one of the one of the people in our Slack channel was talking about the way they use breadboards is to switch things with their their micro just to prove that their code is switching the way they want it to mm -hmm. so they have some kind of dev board and they just put leds all over the place and they they blink it great that that's a fantastic use of it um but yeah so you know you're not going to be doing high-speed digital communication over it but 
I mean, I've done situations. I've done I square C through <laughs> through a breadboard before. That seemed to be fine. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. It, 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 it once again, it all depends. That depends. that might be one of the ones where like the parasitics do actually bite you. In the it back, does, though. but um, I've I've run I square C spy. Um, one time I did run USB through through a breadboard before. Um, that seemed to be okay. I probably would not recommend it, but it was like one of those, hey, let's see if this works. And it worked. And I'm like, good. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, at least you approached it with like, let's see if this works, as opposed to approaching it saying like, this is supposed to work. Why is it not yeah. if it didn't? Well, I knew there was, you know. dude, could be problems with with uh, right. parasitics or or uh, actually even just RF, you know, radiating out of the, the breadboard. Because, you know, you got a lot of like, antennas basically when you plug when you plug something into that breadboard it's got like little fingers right that go up and and (laughs) and bind to your um to your uh terminals and each one of those fingers is a is an antenna (laughs) oh it's super not ideal for that kind of situation so i i've put 350 volts on a breadboard before (laughs) which (laughs) <laughs> which okay you shouldn't put like mains voltage on it i mean that's very dangerous i have put high voltage on breadboards but kind of once again back to the whole like you gotta obey physics i just made sure i put enough isolation between you know whatever adjacent circuits like i don't have 350 volts between adjacent pads you know i put like or rails eight yeah. pads in between them you know so i i wouldn't necessarily recommend it i'm just saying like you, you can do it. it 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 does work you just have to be really safe with it i mean the max i've ever put on a breadboard was like 15 volts I what what are, what are breadboards rated for? Like forty eight, maybe twenty four, something something in that range. Oh, I don't know. Let me see what the one I bought is rated for. They're also probably not rated for very high current. So, uh, okay, breadboards are commonly rated for five volts at one amp, or fifteen volts at one third of an amp. Hmm. The so uh, basically five at- watts. So uh, the the one I bought from Makeronics uh, on Amazon, the three thousand two hundred twenty point solderless breadboard, and they don't have any specs in the product description, but in the customer questions and answers, um, someone asked, "What's the amp rating? Is this safe to use?" For blah 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 blah. Makeronics Direct, the seller says rated it. 300 volts for current up to three to five amps. Okay, not three to five amps at 300 volts. But it just says the rated voltage is 300 volts, which is a lot. And the rated current (laughs) is three to five amps. They don't have a specification what that amps are at. Yeah, that sounds really dangerous. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Or I don't it's know if I'd really put badass. like a thousand watts of power through it. Because <laughs> I'd be more, more at that point. It's not really like if the metal fingers can handle the current. Because I bet you they totally could. It's whether or not your contact has enough pressure to allow that much current to flow through. I also wouldn't want much heat to generate and then you melt everything. Well, that's that's what I'm saying is like the conductor that's actually in there, the the metal that's like forming the fingers. It's this probably enough material in there to handle the current load and the and the voltage. I'm talking about like your limiting factor is the fingers contact pressure onto the, your terminal. Yeah, they're just spring loaded. Yeah, but like that's things like when you look at like terminals that are are like spring-loaded terminals that are designed for high current and high voltage. Like I say, Wago, uh, was it Wago? Wago terminals, um, like the little lever style. You put the wire in and snap it. Like those have an, a crazy amount of contact pressure uh, inside that uh, when you snap that lever down so it can handle that much current. 
Um, and so that, that's like, I think that's probably what the limiting factor on the Sotos breadboard is, is actually the contact pressure is because you can't have a lot of contact pressure because then you can't get the terminal into the Sotos breadboard. But too loose, <laughs> you start to heat up <laughs> by, you know, not uh, by having a higher contact resistance. Right, right, right. Also, breadboards can get dirty and and grimy and they can get a bunch of finger cheese down in all the holes and stuff and just nastiness and i'm sure that adds to resistance so uh, you know if you start to pass a bunch of current through that that probably ends up heating up a bit i wonder what the what the dielectric uh constant for cheeto dust is (laughs) you gotta make some some cheeto caps yeah some Chester caps. That's Chester, what they are. Chester caps. <laughs> uh, Those caps are the cheesiest. Have you ever had a breadboard circuit just flat out not work for you? No, it always worked some in some way. Um, again, I'm not doing like really high speed analog or anything. I'm, I'm mostly just do low speed stuff, especially even on the digital side, like. I mean, I've done I square C and that worked. I mean, I never looked at the signal on like an oscilloscope to see how not good it was, but it, it, I was talking to the devices I needed to talk to and didn't lose any data in my testing. And, uh, and guess what? The, the revision one of that board worked. Actually, I think we shipped that product on that rev one. Nice. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's it's. I, I remember uh, we had one lab where we were required to make a multi-stage amplifier that um, had to have a particular bandwidth, it had to have a particular gain, and it had to have a particular output impedance. And um, the resistors were so garbage that they gave us. But what was funny, they also gave us a bunch of trim pots that nobody was had touched, so they were like really brand new, nice. We ended up building the entire amp where we replaced every resistor with trim pots and we just trimmed everything to be exactly what we wanted and then measured those. And it was funny because in our lab report, we didn't have standard values like, oh, it's a 2.2K or whatnot. Like all of our values were like (laughs) 10.085 ohms. Like like we had like very, very specific stuff. And we ended up getting an A on that one. Um, I don't think the TA ever saw our circuit. We were probably like, why do they have all these weird resistor values? But we hit every every target by just sitting there with trimmers going away at it. That's one way to do it. Yeah, I mean, it worked. I think like, in a way it feels like cheating, but I mean, we got the result. Yeah. Right? I, I would recommend if you're a electrical engineer, if you're a brand new electrical engineering student, I guess not many start in the beginning of the year. Um, but if you have a lab, it's your first lab and you they have breadboards and stuff, just, just buy a $35 breadboard um, and buy a box of capacitors and buy a box of resistors from... And like you'll spend fifty bucks. It's cheaper than a a uh, a uh, textbook, and you'll save yourself. You know what's also another thing is to buy is you can get really get multimeter probes. You don't need to get a multimeter; just get the probes, and then get an oscill- and get oscilloscope probes, like simple like one hundred megahertz oscilloscope probes. Because I had ba- a bad oscilloscope probe once too where the, the ground wasn't actually attached. And so like, it was just reading just garbage all the time. And got <laughs> just by the way, the background radiation yeah, of the universe. Always <laughs> yeah, background radiation of the universe. Always check, <laughs> always check is put your probe on that one kilohertz signal that your scope generates out the front. Even at my home lab, that's the first thing I always do. So I, I put my probe into the meat of the, into channel one and I, touch it to that to make sure that I get a one kilohertz through my probe at whatever amplitude it should be at. Usually it's like one volt. Um, make sure it's bang on perfect that way and be like, okay, good. I'm, I am calibrated. <laughs> I, I, I felt like it was, it was a travesty that, that 
we first had to figure out why our equipment was bad to be able to figure out how to use our equipment. Like, yeah. Th- that just feels like crap. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm spending this much money at school. Can I not just have some okay resistors, you know? Well, yeah. why do I have to figure that out? But, but then again, like <laughs> so much of engineering is that like, you got to figure it out yourself, you know? I think, you I think it's stuff. the crusty professors wanting us to suffer like they had to suffer. Someone can break that mold. Yep. You know? Oh. I don't know. Listen to us. Go buy stuff. It's not that expensive. You know, and we always talked about this, but we should probably, it'd be really cool to put together like a, you're a new, I don't know how many electrical engineers listen to us that are like fresh, like in college still. I don't know what, I don't even know what our demographic is. It'd be interesting to find Who, out. Yeah. Yeah, How many people? Know. Here's a survey. Maybe it's a bunch of old gray beard professors. <laughs> yeah, could be. How many? How many? Here's a survey for a survey. How many people out there would do a survey if we put one out there? <laughs> <laughs> How are they supposed to report this? <laughs> uh, Slack channel. Slack or podcast at macfred.com. Yes, the email address. I wish there was a way to like, because there's the show notes, but I don't know how many people read the show notes either. To like, where if you went to go download the podcast, it would be like, here's a survey, please take it. And then you can get your podcast. I think that'd be annoying too. Yeah, that's a great way to have people not download the podcast. Yeah, not download the podcast. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it would be interesting to know, like, uh, you know. So what what I was getting at with that. Yeah, 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 yeah. uh, Is we should do, we've talked about this before. We should do a list of like, this is like the cheapest bare minimal that you could go to get started in like electronics as a student. Yeah, like a double E survival kit. Yeah. And like, it's going to be like a $20 multimeter. And like, this is like, I guess you could assume like you have a lab, like you're an actual student and you have a lab to go to. So it would be like, get a breadboard, get some components, resistors and stuff, jumpers. And then like, I guess at that point, you can assume that the multimeters are good. Just get probes, right? And then be, and then same thing yeah. with the oscilloscope probe. Like get um one get like some cheap one hundred megahertz scope probes, and then it'd be like the next level would be like okay, you survived electronic one hundred and one lab. Now you need to go get a multimeter, and you need to go get a scope. Now what do you get? Oh yeah, there's there's like trip points and thresholds that once you've once you've leveled up, you get the next thing. Yeah. It's like, I think the most important tool for an electrical engineer is like a DMM, a digital multimeter. It's like, that's probably yeah. the number one tool. Um, even a $20 Cause, one cause, is cause like I the most that, important Because I think thing. it's ubiquitous. I think that applies to all v- variations of, of EE and on, uh, above and beyond that, like that, that still is useful throughout your house, even if you're yeah. not doing engineering stuff. Exactly. Like you, you're not going to go take a scope and and plug it into a wall socket to see if the wall sockets has voltage on it, right? Done that before, though. <laughs> I'm sure you have. Yeah, because I didn't have a multimeter. Why did I not have a multimeter? So you just brought a scope over the I wall? think it's actually because my multimeter's battery, the 9-volt battery in it was dead. And so yeah. and I, I still needed to measure it, see what see if it was working or not. I love it. That's great. Because that's actually one thing is I, um, when I do electro- electrical work around the house, as I always make sure it is turned off before I touch it. <laughs> oh, a hundred percent. So yeah. I'll turn the breaker off and I always double check it with a, a meter. Um, cause you never know. It could be on some rando circuit that is not that room and it's happened before. Well- I, I, I recently had to disconnect a handful of machines at work and we're talking about three phase 
230 and a handful of single phase 400 volt which it's an odd one but it, we mm. have 400 volt stuff and i'm checking every step of the way uh you know turn off the breaker turn off the disconnect check at the breaker check at the disconnect like i you can't be too safe you can't be that. too safe about it yeah so breadboards <laughs> yeah we did we did an hour of breadboarding yeah um almost an hour. i guess the, the, the loop around is um you could totally even with everything going surface mount you could totally use breadboards um be smart about your routing just like you would do with a pcb layout um so like what I do is I always do my schematic and then breadboard it out, building it off the schematic, that net list that you have there, and see if it works. Because that's where you always you you will catch your error there. If you have a net list problem, you will catch it there because your circuit won't work. And then then you have unlocked the secret to Rev1 working. That's assuming <laughs> if you run it right. <laughs> Well, yeah, yeah, that's true. There's still many pitfalls between the breadboard and and the yeah. axle. But usually, it's like if you your EDA tool is going to make sure you follow your net list, right? Uh, it's not an EDA tool if it doesn't. Yeah, but I'm saying is like as long as your net list is correct, at least your circuit's going to be connected correctly. So it might not perform how you want it, but at least it should work how it works on your yeah. breadboard. Um. Unless you do something really weird. Uh, yeah, unless you just route it like a maniac. Yeah. Or the um or you have a footprint wrong. Which we talked about last week, right? <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, what one quick last thing. This this was actually something I, my college did really, really well, and I was super happy about this. This was minor, but it wasn't minor for me at the time. Uh, they, they actually the, the the TAs created uh, cables for our power supplies. That one end was bananas, and on the other end, they they soldered on in a in a really good way and heat shrunk little um, uh, studs that you could plug into a breadboard. And they were really well done, and they were beefy, and they lasted a long time. If you're if you're a new student or if you breadboard stuff on the regular. Make make a, a handful of those cables. Banana cables are so cheap to buy. If you can buy the the really flexible silicon ones, those ones are super nice. And make some just studs so you can get power into your board really really easily. So you don't have to do like a custom thing or alligator clip into your 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 breadboard every single time. Those cables were amazing because and everyone trusted them. I don't know what it was. Like everything else was garbage. Those cables were awesome. You just plug them into your power supply, you knew you had yeah, power. I I've got um I've got I got I don't have that cable. I should build that cable cuz I have other cables nice. that are really important. <laughs> yeah. I I do have alligator to that style where like I can plug oh, to it a to a stud, yeah. Yeah, to stud. Well, you know, terminals really. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I have micro grabbers to that oh the little little spring clippies things those things yeah. are amazing for like pulling signals off of a uh evaluation board those are the, like the best because sometimes you just get like test points so you have to grab onto the test point um and the alligator clips are kind of there it, just it does for, depend on the quality of them though yeah it does because like you can you can get really really garbage ones well yeah because like but, the, the brass end like just bends up or you try to grab something, <laughs> yeah. oh. then it's just like I don't know, it's just yeah, it like a flat finger hanging up. Yeah, it, it, it's it's interesting. I I've bought some that are just worthless, absolutely worthless. But then I got some that came with a um, a DLA that my company purchased, and they're like high quality, like top notch ones. And the difference between those is massive. Like when you get a good gripper cable, you know you got a good one. It yeah, that's, that's one thing is I gotta find is. I, I have a multimeter probe that I really like. I like the $8 super sharp set that's on Amazon. Yeah. Um, I got to find a micro grabber that I'm like, these are great. This is it. Yeah. So that I think we're finished, right? Finally. 
I think we are. 59 minutes of breadboards. So. Quick, you have like 15 seconds. That was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We were your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Thank you. Yes, you are a listener for downloading our podcast. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Stephen and I know. Tweet us at MacFab at Longhorn Engineer or at Analog ENG or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. You can find it at MacFab.com slash Slack.